There we go. I used one of our first Fridays to kind of give a report about what had happened and those kinds of things. And uh, this year around, I'd like to take just a little bit of time in our service before I kind of get into my message for today to share you a little bit with you about our journey together. Uh, and um, you'll see here that uh, this is the home in which I stayed um, when I arrived there on Thursday, uh, the 9th of February. Uh, Frank Reynolds, uh, the pastor emeritus of Manchester Christian Church, and a pastoral friend of his from Virginia were already there, and they were conducting a training for a smaller group of pastors, about 15 pastors, at the home. And um, you notice I I called the event Good Rain. Uh, Most of you were familiar with that, but when I was there in 2010 and had a chance to meet with a group of pastors, one of the guys, uh, Pastor Deo, uh, said to me, said, you know, you need to be a good rain. And I said, well, what does that mean? You know, through a translator, I said, what does that mean? He said, a good rain is a rain that comes back over and over again. And, and uh, so I've been trying to be a good rain and putting together a ministry journey that we could call good rain. And um, really the focus has been on pastors, you know, focusing on leadership. You know, our, our objective and our goal is to help, not to hurt. Sometimes the Western church, when it tries to do things for the mission field that the mission field cannot do on their own, that it's not doesn't fit the culture, it doesn't fit their resources, doesn't fit their strategy. We actually slow things down instead of speed things up. So investing in pastors and allowing them to blaze the trail is really the kind of the, the route we've been taking. But the house is actually quite comfortable. I mean, there's at least one light in every room. There are a few outlets that you can plug things in to keep them charged. It has running water. It does not have hot water, but it has running water, so you can at least flush a toilet. And you can fill a bucket and stick a heat stick in it and heat it up and dump it over your head just a little bit at a time as you stand in what serves as as a shower. Uh, But uh, all in all, generally uh, comfortable. And it's the same place we stayed last year as well. Um, The first Sunday I was there, I got a chance to to preach again at this church. This is the church in a section of Kimi Ronco called Zarephath. And um, as you can tell, uh, if if you look closely... Um, you can see that this is a pretty primitive structure. It's got mud block walls. And if you look up here, you can just see those are just tree trunks that they formed into rafters. They're not milled or anything else. They're just tree trunks. And they got tin roofs on them. And so they line the inside of their buildings as much as they can afford with fabric to make it look better. And um, they've been meeting in this church for in this rented building for quite a while. They own property about... Uh, four or five hundred yards from here, and they've been slowly accum- accumulating block onto it um, and so that they can try to build a, faci- build a building up. And uh, I have some thoughts about that, and I'll, I'll share those at a, at a later time. Um, but uh, they, you can tell they're very colorful in their clothing. They love to dance. They love to sing. And I'm going to bring that thought up a, a little later in my message as part of their of uh, some of the challenges that the pastors have. But just, just had a, a great time of worship there that morning. Um, I think there was a picture on my blog uh, from that morning as well. This is the place where we taught. We were in a different location from last year. Uh, this is the, the part of Kigali known as Kininya. And um, up in the top, you can see this is the classroom setting, much brighter than last year. There are no glass on any of those windows. So when it would start to rain hard and blow, the guys who were sitting underneath the windows so they could actually read their Bibles had to move inward. When I preached there last year, it started to pour in the middle of my sermon and people were pulling out umbrellas inside the building to keep from getting wet. But this is a facility that had been built by the British uh, for this area. 
And um, so you get different sides. This is what you know functions as the front, and this is the side that faced kind of up the hill, and this was the lower side where we spent a lot of our time. And we were there every day, Monday through Friday. Uh, we started at 9 a.m., and we finished at 5 to 5.30 every day. And just down the hill from here is where we took, took our meals. Um, there is a church that's meeting in this facility on a regular basis, and um, you can just see that the, most of the guys had plastic chairs to sit in. There are no desks for them to use to write notes on. A lot of them would go get the drums or whatever that they had and kind of put them in front of them as a, as a table to try to write. And a number of guys had to sit on wooden benches, but at least some of the benches had backs to them, so they weren't just kind of like sitting on a bad t-ball dugout bench for the whole, whole time we were together. Um, but uh, they had a great attitude through the whole thing. And, uh, you know, this is, this is where they took their meals and where many of them slept. We rented this place for them this time. They didn't sleep in the same building that we taught. So, so inside this facility here, about 30 guys slept. Now, it, it couldn't have been any bigger than this section right here. But, and and I, I felt really bad for the guys. And then, then later it re- dawned on me that a lot of these guys are sleeping in homes on dirt floors with no mattresses and poor roofs, if, if they have any roof. And so to come here where they had a mattress on the floor and it was a cement floor and they had a roof over their heads, it was actually kind of like going to a three-star hotel for most of these guys. It was an upgrade. But uh, there, was a, um, there was a team of, um, that had been hired uh, to make all the meals, and there was a, a repetity to the meals. It was rice, chips, which is potatoes kind of fried up, you know, ch- cut up into chunks and fried. There was usually some kind of noodle like a noodle with some kind of a broth you could put over it, a meat that I never ate because half the time it was... Uh, anyways, I won't even go into that. And then, and, then they, and then they often had... Sometimes it would have like spinach or something along those lines. And then they would serve you a warm Fanta. You know, that's what they... Everything's called a Fanta, but they don't, they don't do it. You have to ask for a cold soda if you can get it because they don't do cold. And so um, I think part of it is just because a lot of places don't have electricity and it's also pretty... pretty uh, expensive for them to run. And uh, these guys would not eat until we arrived. We had to go through first. So we learned not to hang around and take questions. We'd run down, get first in line, go through so they could start eating. And then they would, and then they would come and ask us their questions as we went along. So, um, but they, this is a couple of our, our students. This is a time when they were working on their sermons together. What happened is uh, Monday through Wednesday, Thursday noontime, um, we, I taught them the book of Ephesians. So I took three and a half days to teach them the six chapters of the book of Ephesians. Then we spent a couple of hours together talking about how to put together a biblically rooted sermon. And then they were commissioned to write sermons on certain sections. This is Pastor Aron on the right. And he uh, used to serve in Kigali, but now is out in an area called Gassini. And then this is Pastor Amy, and uh, I had a chance to preach in her, the church that she serves on uh, my last day there, my last Sunday there. And they were assigned the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. I got to tell you, at the beginning, these guys hated this. <laughs> you know, they just did not like it at all. They were complaining and et cetera. And we were having them work on like a summary statement of the entire text. And they just, they were coming up and complaining. And Tofield was just great working along with me to kind of put them in their place and make them work at it. But by the end, they were grateful that they had worked through it. What happened was we had them write out like three-page sermons. And then at the end, we put them all together, had them all photocopied, had them bound up, and they went home with, with um, 
uh, basically they had two messages on every section of the book of Ephesians, but they landed up with four on Ephesians 10 through 20, which was on the spiritual warfare piece. And uh, they were very grateful to get them. This is when they were receiving their ties. So um, that number of guys, you can see one of the guys wearing the suit from last year. Uh, I saw a lot of the suits that we handed out last year being used this year. And, uh, and then also uh, they, they were grateful to get the ties, and, uh, and they were wearing them as the week went on. Up in the top right-hand corner, that is Pastor Theofield, or Bishop Theofield, as they call him. There we go. This guy right here. And he's the guy that we work through. And he has become a good friend, and he's also just a, a fine Christian leader. Uh, not something that you, you find always on the mission field, especially in a place like Africa. Sometimes they're, they're in the relationships for what they can get out of them. And, and, and Tofield really... Um, is there to serve the church, to serve his church. And, and one of the things that thrills me, it's a fully indigenous church. Started by Rwandans, run by Rwandans, resourced by Rwandans, and we're just coming alongside as a partner. Uh, they don't have any connection with any outside mission agencies except for um, what we're doing through microseeds and, and, and the things that we do as a part of Good Rain. And uh, now what uh, Frank is doing through the Rwanda Challenge. But very minimal connections, unlike many others. You can, you can see my coffee travel mug at the bottom, which I, I left behind. And um, we actually had brewed coffee this year. It kind of like made like in a camp stove uh, kind of thing at, at the house on, on, in the mornings. Um, but Theofield, just to give you a word, he, he does not receive any money from any of the churches. Um, he'll translate or do some teaching three or four times a month to earn some income to support his family. Besides that, he just serves the churches, and, and he's really been a, a, a great connection for us. Um, this was the, the final day that we were together, and uh, this is Pastor John, and you can recognize the shirt there on the right, so it was a, it was a gift to me. And this is Frank Reynolds, uh, and this is Pastor John. So they each got a certificate. That's a big deal to them. As we were putting these together, you know, Tofield said, it has to be a different color than last year. And, and I'm thinking, why does it have to be a different color? And that's because most of these guys, their congregations can't read. So if it's all the same color, it looks like the same thing to them. So you've got to have a different color. So, you know, we've got green, we've got black, and this had a little kind of like reddish color or something or other in it. So they'd know it's something different for each of their trainings. And Frank is handing them there a, 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 a file folder, and inside of that is a copy of the notes from the series that he taught to the 15 guys at the beginning on the gift, the gifts, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit as well as about $20, 20 U.S. dollars, uh, 12,000 uh, Rwandan francs for them to buy food for their families when they got home. Um, and so just a great celebration. that they, they, really, uh, they, re- they really get excited about those moments. So here they all are with their, uh, with their certificates. And you can see that these are the notebooks that they were writing in all week. And somewhere in here, I think you can see the, uh, one of the, the, the bound-up copies of their sermons and so that was Friday afternoon, about 3.30 or so, just before most of them headed out to head home. Some of them who had long distances had to wait till the next day. So um, again, just a, a great time of celebration. Um, and this is uh, the gift that they gave me, a map of Rwanda with all the individual districts on it. And I look forward to putting it up in my office. And the guy on the right is, is Polycarp. And um, Polycarpe, they call him over there. And uh, he's 73 years old, um, was... Um, between several different times during acts of genocide, whether it was the major event in 1994 or whether it was prior to that between 59 and 94, he was, he was beaten and left for dead three different times. 
And now he has like acute asthma and a bunch of other things as a result of that, just the, the ways that they beat him and they destroyed his larynx and et cetera. And, uh, but he serves kind of like as the, the vice legal representative, uh, is the way Tofield puts it, the, the vice, uh, vice president for him. And he, he takes care of a number of the churches that are out in the southwest. And we were planning on going, but it was about a seven-and-a-half-hour ride each way. And the fuel costs were going to be like 300 and something dollars, and we just didn't have the resources for it with everything that we wanted to do. So we're going to have to plan to do that next year. But he's a wonderful fella, and the guys really look up to him uh, along with Tofield. And, um, and it's just one of those guys when you're around him, you, you know, you're just encouraged because of the, the kind of person he is, the kind of leader he is, the, the servant heart that he has, and, and just a boy. Anyways, neat, neat guy. He had 13 children. And, uh, and on top of that, he took in Nicodem, who's one of the pastors, when Nicodem was only 13, Nicodem's story. And uh, um, when the genocide broke out, he was actually out on Lake Kivu fishing, and they heard that it had broken out, and they just rowed to the other side, which is the, the Congo, and he's 10 years old, has no idea where his parents are, doesn't know what happened to his family, whatever. He just goes with whoever into the Congo. And, um, and then eventually he landed up living with, Nicodem, uh, with, with Polycarp and uh, growing up and, and becoming a pastor. Now he's married and has three children. Uh, so just, again, uh, just some tremendous stories. Um, this was the big event on the 19th, which was the, the, um, the dedication of the tent. The tent actually will be a little bit larger than that eventually. There was a, a five-meter section that, you know, kind of goes across... They have two end pieces, and you have different sections you can put in, and they just didn't have enough room prepared yet to put all of it up, and they didn't need all of it, so they have one five-meter section or a little over 15 feet kind of set aside. You can tell here that there was a ton of work that they needed to do to get this done. Look, I mean, look at the size of that retaining wall. I don't know if that would pass inspection in the United States. but And then over here, literally the height of the, the tent, they had to dig down into the wall you know, into the mud to, to be able to get it in there. So they worked really hard to get this up. And, um, and you know, just part of the story here, um, this is a, 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 a rather poor section of Kigali. I, I don't even remember the name, but it's, it's where a lot of the microseeds uh, loans were originally given. And, and I didn't know all the story behind this, but this is where Theofield had started his first church. And, and they had really grown to be a thriving congregation of about 600 people. And they were meeting in a building... And uh, the owner, who was living in France, wanted to get rid of it, wanted to sell it. And so Tofield had worked out an arrangement with him to buy the building from him. And so he had worked through all of that. And at the very last minute, the, the individual's cousin or whoever who was managing the building um, decided to sell it to a Presbyterian church that hadn't even started yet, as opposed to letting Theophil's group kind of keep it. And Theophil did all he could to try to retain it, but, but really um, they lost it, and the congregation had to move. And, uh, and it dwindled from like 600 to like 35, 40 people. And, it was, and, and, it, and as Tofield shared during his dedication service, he said it was like a, it was like a stain on their ministry. It was, a, it, you know, it was shame, if you will. And, and by the provision of the tent for this congregation for this season, it's like that, that shame had been lifted. You know? And, and uh, it, was, it was just really kind of incredible to be there. I, some of it is a blur to me because that was the day I was sick. I woke up in the middle of the night pretty ill. I just ached all over, etc. I kind of got through my part and then got a ride back to the house while the celebration went on to like 3.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> I just c- couldn't make it that far. So you can see inside here, uh, uh, the, on the inside, it kind of throws off a little bit of Joseph's multicolored jacket kind of look inside with the sun shining on it. It was quite interesting. Dirt floor. Uh, I don't know where they got, I think they brought the chairs from Caninia to there. 
And um, you see Tophiel uh, up above, uh, kind of slightly obscured is his wife Miriam. And then that's Polycarp. And this is Deo, the guy who asked me to be a good rain, who serves as the treasurer of the group. And then uh, you can see uh, Frank preaching uh, with, uh, with Theophil down below. I think uh, I had a day off, and I spent it with Arthur's mom, Hope, who does a, number, a lot of ministry with, with uh, underprivileged kids. And we went outside the city probably about f- 45 minutes or so. And uh, we went way down in the boonies. I mean, the, the road we were on in the SUV, I mean, the branches were coming into the window. I mean, it was just it was really designed more for walking than driving. And eventually we pulled into this little village, and here's a building that she had rented, and they run a nursery school out of there. It's two-and-a-half to five-year-olds trying to get them ready for school. And um, dirt floor, this was kind of like a break time. There are 88 children who meet in that room, 88 children, and the vast majority of them there on scholarship. So I'm taking way too much time. I've got to keep moving. Um, this is Ezron, and uh, he's one of those guys who couldn't see. So we took him to a place and got his eyes checked and got him some glasses, and, and now he can actually read his Bible, which he couldn't do before. And so you can see he's got his thumb up like this, wearing his new glasses. So it was a, a neat moment. Uh, this is at Amy's church on, on uh, the last Sunday we were there. They were giving me a, a shield. The shield of faith, if you will, you can see it in my, my left hand there. And this is the church, uh, the whole, that's the entire church family, and that's the, but the full size of the building. Dirt floor, um, no electricity, uh, no running water. The, the, the outhouse out back uh, had wood around the hole, if you will, just some concrete block, a, a small curtain, and no roof. So uh, good luck if it's raining. And uh, so anyways... Um, this was uh, Pastor Martin's home. I, I wrote my blog about this on Monday. Uh, we had a chance to travel out to a project that was taking place in the Northeast, not too far from the game park, one of the very poor sections of the country. And you can see up above there, this is Pastor Martin's home. He lives there with his wife, who's holding their like six-month-old baby, and uh, if, if that, and he has eight children. And they live in that. That's their home. Um, you can see that they... He didn't have enough money to buy the kind of the sheet metal for up above, so they just use tarps as best they can. From the looks of the inside, it, when it rains, it gets wet inside. Dirt floors, no furniture, and this is their kitchen. That's what they kick over. That's that same area right there. So, and you can see them drying their corn uh, right out here in the in the sunlight, trying to get it to ready for the ways that they're going to use it. And um, uh, it's just hard to fathom, isn't it? Just hard to fathom. This is, a, this is a Rwandan pickup truck. Um, it's unbelievable what you will see in the back of a bicycle. Uh, uh, you know, just sometimes you'll see half a dozen of those white bags or just huge bundles of bananas. Uh, we saw our bureau on the back of one of them. Sometimes there's, you know, uh, 50 gallons of water hanging off of them. That's what they use to get their stuff to market. And you see the guys just pushing the bikes uphill to get them to market early in the morning. Uh, it's... Uh, it's an interesting journey. This is Nehemiah. Um, this is a Roman Catholic church building. And on this site during the genocide, um, 10,000 people were killed. Um, inside the church facility, there are wooden benches. And um, the garments of everyone that was killed inside, about a little over 2,000 people, are just piled up on the benches. Um, you can still see the blood marks on the wall from where they swung three and four and five-year-olds against the wall and smashed their heads. Um, and you, this is the, the, the insert at the bottom on the right 
is uh, the, the memorial up back, and, and there's, um, I think in this particular area, um, that buried on this site, there's over, um, this particular area of Rwanda, 45,000 and change died. They're still actually finding bodies occasionally that are stuck out in the woods that they haven't found yet. Um, and it's just, a, it's, a, it's beautiful looking from the outside. It's a reminder about how depraved we can be as left to our own devices. But Kigali is a, is, this is the capital. You can see that there are some, you know, multi-story buildings around. Coming, you know, like in here and here and here. And there's a brand new one downtown, a 16-story uh, glass facility that's really would look, wouldn't look out of pra- place in downtown Boston. But uh, in some ways, it's also a very rural land still. And um, a place where uh, God's at work and um, a place where there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, I do have some some scriptural thoughts I want to share with you this morning as a part of it. And, you know, um, I've kind of couched my thoughts together underneath the, uh, the concept of eye-opening moments. You know, um, we, one of the pastors stood up to read his sermon, and he started reading, and he, and, he, and he started bumbling, and then he started repeating himself, and et cetera. And, and the guys were kind of giving him a hard time and laughing with him, and it, it was in the right spirit. And he just said, I, I can't see the words on the page. And then later I, I remembered he was the guy who sat underneath the window so he had enough light. He, he just couldn't read. And his name was Sylvie. And uh, he was one of, the guy, two, one of the two guys I took downtown on one of the days I wasn't teaching and got him an eye exam and got him some glasses. Uh, and, and then he could see. You know? and, and yet um, I, I really saw that as a metaphor for the, almost really the, the entire uh, time we were there because it was... One of those moments where people, you know, if you, we were studying the book of Ephesians and the heart and soul of Paul's two prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 is that they'd be able to see what it was that God had done for them. You know, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be open. I pray that God would give you a spirit of revelation, that you'd be able to see truth, that you would know the love of God and comprehend, be able to get your hands on it, to be able to see it. And and I really began to kind of see our whole journey there as, as helping them to, to see. And there were just a couple of, of truths I, I wanted to kind of point out to you this morning, I, I think that are relevant to us, but were particularly relevant, relevant to them. One of those eye-opening moments was when they came to really understand what it, mean, it meant to be in Christ. You know, the, the book of Ephesians, when it starts out in the first 14 verses, the phrase in Christ or in him is used 11 times in 14 verses. And that's a whole section that is couched in how God has blessed us in Christ. And he walks through these seven blessings, but over and over again, you hear the phrase in Christ or in, in him. And, and over the, the time when we were together, their, their understanding of what it meant to be in Christ I mean, one of the biggest issues they have is, well, what does it mean? What's the implications of it when it happens when a, when a believer sins? Do we lose our salvation? Does it mean we've, what, what does that mean? And, and as they came to understand what it meant to be in Christ, and, and we used an illustration with them, and, and let me try to use the same here, but you think of, um, we used two chairs, and we, we kind of started with the idea that, that, you know, this is Adam and Eve, and this is God, and when they're in the garden, they're together. But when sin comes in, it, it separates them from God. And we actually took a plastic chair and kind of tossed it across the room and, and let it bounce. And there's this huge division. So God and man are separated from one another. But in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, as it talks about in Ephesians. But when we are reconciled to God, we actually become in Christ. And, and you can see the lights start to go on. 
with them. Their eyes began to be opened of what it meant to be in Christ. And, and so I, I was sharing with them, and, and you, know, the, you know, I said, you know, when, when, when a believer sins, they're still in Christ. It, it may change their relationship a little bit, but they're still in Christ. They don't lose that salvation. And, and the whole idea of, of knowing the love of God and, and the idea of, of the fact that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, the, their eyes just started opening and they began to grip it. Imagine what it's like to live where your, your understanding of salvation is that if, well, if you sin, you, God doesn't love you anymore. And how far that is from scriptural truth and to begin to start to see their eyes go open, that God has done everything to make it possible for us to be in him and that there's nothing that can separate us from that. And, and the, the list could just go on and on. And, and, and how the mystery that God has revealed to them through Christ, that it was that in Christ he was reconciling Jew and Gentile together to be in Christ for eternity. And it was, a, it was an eye-opening experience for them. When you could say to them, do you get it? And they'd say, we finally get it. And then we wrapped along into the second week and we're working through the doctrine of man and sin and salvation and talking about all the big biblical ideas of propitiation and justification, reconciliation and redemption and substitutionary atonement and all these ideas. Their eyes just kept kind of opening up spiritually. And they realized who they were in Jesus Christ and they finally understood that their journey spiritually was not somehow to become God's child. It was that they already were God's child and they needed literally just to become who they already were in Christ. And I tell you, that made the trip worth it on its own. Just another truth. You know, the second week we were doing some doctrinal studies and, and, and the first day was on the Word of God and we traveled out there and we forgot our notes. I forgot all the teaching notes. I have my notes, but we didn't have their translation in Kenny Rwandan, so we had to send the car back to Kimi Ronko to get the notes. And So it was about a 30, 40-minute window in there. We just sat and, and literally just had a conversation about the Word of God. And, I mean, you're, you're in a culture where the vast majority of people are, are illiterate. We had a few pastors who had some high school education. A number of them had gotten through the public school system, which is, ends in the seventh grade. But there were a number of them who only went to, like, the third, fourth, and fifth grade. And then they stopped. Um, and, and then and a lot of their people have never been to school because it's not mandatory. The, the country doesn't have the infrastructure to educate every child, so they can't make it mandatory. So the, these guys are serving churches where the vast majority of people can't read. And many of them couldn't afford a Bible if they had one. So we're having this journey talking about what does it mean to really expose people to the Word of God. And as we began to work through the doctrine of the fact that the Word of God is, you know, is, is profitable. You know, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. I mean, how, how do you get that across to people? And we were working through that whole journey together. And then... You know, then, you know, when the, the Word of God is living and active and it, it has this ability to, to bring life into people's lives, it literally is a part of being renewed in our minds. It's, it's a part of the whole transformation process of becoming who we already are in Christ. And, and we just kind of kept working through all of those that it's, it's a spiritual food that we're supposed to long for. You know, and part of their response was, and it was interesting to me how American it was, and we started talking about, well, maybe one of the things that they could do was just to read Scripture in their services. You know, just read a, a chapter of a gospel a week. I mean, they have two and a half, three hour long services. Certainly they can spare eight to ten minutes. And these guys said that they were, they, they were concerned because their people came to sing and to dance. Their people came to sing and to dance. I read it as, my people, the people come to be entertained. 
We struggle with that a lot in the American church as well, right? Is the music good enough? Are the seats comfortable? Does the pastor preach too long? You know, we get all this long list of things that make it fit as to what's, what we're looking for in a church. And, and they're struggling with the same thing. And one of the things that I was amazed by and humbled by, that as these guys began to appreciate the significance of the Word of God and growing people in their faith, and they as the shepherds of these churches, they, they embraced the challenge of trying to introduce the Word of God in a on a more full basis to their churches. But a number of them said, I need to learn how to read better. I need to go back to school. What a reaction as, as they had these eye-opening moments. That if, if I can't even read the Word in such a way that I can understand it, how is it that God can really use me in the lives of others? Just one last truth. As we were preparing for the journey through Ephesians, we, we knew we were going to eventually come to the sections on husband and wives. Uh, the state of marriage in Rwanda is very low. Still a very paternal, male-oriented society, especially out in the rural areas. It's not uncommon in the rural areas for husbands to beat their wives if they do something wrong. In fact, when I was there the first time, one of the pastors was telling a story about a miracle that had happened in his family in terms of, uh, of a small child who had, had a, experienced a critical brain a head injury had survived and, 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 and grown and on to be healthy. And he talked about in that journey that as he was praying for his child and rushing to try to take it to a clinic um, where the, they could get some help, he, he said he, he repented of having beat his wife for allowing the church child to get hurt. You know? And so you're teaching into this, into this experience. You know? and, and so it was all hands on deck. Theophil was there. Frank was there. I was there. We were, we were really trying to be prepared to answer anything. And we're certainly working through the text where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And you know, in the whole context of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But, but the idea that really gripped these guys was that marriage, relationship between a husband and wife, is supposed to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. And I said to these guys, I said, now if people look at your relationship with your spouse and they say that's how Christ treats the church, boy, are they going to want to get in on it. The way that we love one another in our marriages is supposed to inspire people to want to become a part of the church because that's the kind of relationship that they're going to have with Christ. And one of their leaders, Aaron, stood up and he said, We've got a lot to repent of as their eyes open. See, we often look at that passage and it's about us. And how's it going to make my marriage better? They understood that that passage says the way that we, as husbands and wives, Christians, husbands and wives, relate to one another, it should inspire the lost world to say, boy, I want to be in that kind of a relationship with Christ. And their eyes were opened. As I was flying home, I began to realize how much we need to have our eyes still open, right? How much we need to understand the Word, be in the Word, because it has a life-giving, divine power within it. And we need to have our eyes open. Many of us need to understand who we are in Christ. The blessings that we enjoy being in Christ. And understand how our lives and our relationships, our marriages, are supposed to live Christ up so that he can draw all men to himself. I pray Paul's prayer for us today, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you are a God working all around the world. Thank you for the great word that we heard from Kelly and from Hannah this morning. The work that you did within them and the work you did through them as they represented you to others. God, thank you. That's a privilege that we enjoy every single day in our own zip codes as well as halfway around the world. God, I'm grateful that you are a God who desires to reveal yourself. And God, that there's a need for us to have an ongoing spirit of revelation in our lives. God, give us eye-opening moments as we look into your word, as we build on our faith in you, and we seek to represent you in our world. 
do it in a way that honors yourself because that will always bless us. So we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing a concluding song together? And I invite our ushers to come forward and receive our offering. We sing.